0: Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks, I'm your host Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy, who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the opportunity to live outside the US for a number of years, which, I think, puts me in a good position to comment, for my American audience, on some events of note going on outside the country and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience, just what the hell's going on in American politics. So, welcome back to the second of my pods with For the People in the title. I don't know if I should call it a, a miniseries? Whatever, this, this multi-part look at some of the vulnerabilities in American democracy and what could be done about them. In the first installment, I talked about a number of things that are making America a not-very-strong democracy and sort of hinted at the direction of some of the ways in which these could be addressed. So to recap, I discussed money in politics, partisan redistricting or gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression, and the Senate. Now, that being said, if you haven't yet heard the first part of this episode that I'm talking about called For the People Part 1, IDing Flaws in U.S. Democracy, pause this right here, go listen to that episode. This really is a direct follow-up to that one and will make a lot more sense with context. So uh, go check out the episode directly f- before this one if you haven't already done so. Speaking of the structure of this bigger, multi-part episode thing, uh, looks like I will have ended up lying to you in the first one when I said this would come out in two parts. I was originally intending to release the first installment, uh, and then a second one where I would have a fairly brief conversation with Global Chair of Democrats Abroad Julia Bryan about some democracy reforms being proposed by the Democrats in Congress, And then for the rest of that episode, I would discuss some of what might stand in the way of those reforms. But Julia was incredibly generous with her time, and we ended up having a much longer and more detailed conversation than I'd anticipated. She is super knowledgeable about these issues and has been actively engaging with uh, some senators' offices as they put together the For the People Act. That's the law that would include this set of proposed reforms, and of course is the thing for which this, I don't know, I'm just going to call it a miniseries now, uh, is named for. Uh, So, uh, I've decided to just release our entire conversation as the second installment, uh, and then in the next one, uh, I will uh, move on to discuss how we could get some of these reforms enacted and what might stand in the way. Before I play our interview, I want to just introduce folks to my guest, and to the organization that she represents, and that, full disclosure, I've been involved with myself at a way lower level. Democrats Abroad is basically the branch of the Democratic Party for Americans living outside the country, and which attempts to mobilize overseas voters to vote in American elections for the Democrats. It's recognized as a state party by the Democratic National Committee and is represented at the convention by eight voting members. DA has 45 country committees and members living in more than 190 countries who vote in every single one of America's congressional districts. Julia herself is based in Prague, but from the Carolinas originally. Like so many of us Democrats abroad, Julia decided to move to Europe for a year, and a little more than two decades later is still here. During that time, she helped found the Czech Republic's first country committee for Democrats abroad and has held several positions in DA's global leadership. A couple years ago, she ascended to the position of global chair, and it's a good thing she did, too, if you're a fan of democratic politics. Under her leadership, the overseas vote in 2020 more than doubled when compared to the 2016 turnout. I'm also pretty sure that the overseas turnout in Georgia in the general election was the margin that pushed John Ossoff's Senate race into a runoff, which is what made it possible for Georgia to then elect two blue senators, which is to say, if you like the fact that Democrats now control the U.S. Senate, well, you owe Julian Bryan a beer. With all that being said, Please welcome the global chair of Democrats Abroad, the personification of why I think term limits can sometimes be a really bad idea, Julia Bryan. Julia, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you. All right. So uh, I spent the first part of this two-part episode basically wishing that uh, the Democratic Party had taken advantage of our huge majorities about a decade ago to make some structural reforms Uh, I basically complained uh, about money in politics, gerrymandering, voter suppression, and the Senate. So we know that elected Democrats now seem to really get that these are problems since they introduced HR1 back in 2018 and have begun holding hearings on statehood for DC and I think Puerto Rico now, or at least there are a couple of bills introduced. Um, I'm sure we'll get further into HR1 in a minute. Um, or S1, or the For the People Act, or whatever we end up calling it. Um, But uh, I actually have a sort of side question that I wanted to ask um, you, as somebody who represents a big block of Democratic voters. So polls show that a huge number of Republican voters care a lot about, quote-unquote, election integrity, which I guess is the latest euphemism for voter suppression. Do you get the sense that Democratic voters are similarly energized about the importance of some of these structural reforms?
1: Absolutely. I was just looking at some numbers, and it showed that I mean, overall, 67% of Americans are supportive of HR one. And of that group, 77% were Democrats. So I think Democrats are, are are really, really in favor of voter protection. It's something that's energizing our base. We see that in Democrats abroad, where um, you know, people are coming to us and saying, What can we do? What can we do? This is very
0: unusual in an off-off year like 2021. Interesting. I wonder. I wonder if that's a, a higher number, in particular among Democrats abroad, given some of the challenges that exist for Americans outside the country voting. That's a really good point. And I think that is, that's partially true, but I do also think that
1: the news in the United States and the information we're hearing about Georgia and just the experience that we had fighting for um, the election in, uh, at the end of uh, 2020, I think that has really energized a lot of people, not just Americans abroad.
0: That, that is a really good point. Yeah, i suppose it's, it's harder to ignore threats to democracy in the face of such a coordinated campaign to roll back voting rights across i think it's 47 states at this point um, it's pretty massive yeah and as well especially after the passage of the georgia law and the focus on some of the well the particularly comical details from the you know the water bottles in line provision um yes
1: that was yeah. a big mistake on their part it, it made it way too sexy for the news to uh you know, usually voter suppression is pretty boring and people don't pay attention to the details. When you add something so heinous as you can't carry water to somebody, that just is like, oh, that puts it all in perspective and just illustrates so clearly how horrible these bills are.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right that, that that probably helped catch attention, but it's also, unfortunately, that is one of the least objectionable parts of the Georgia law. Right. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. But, you know, it also caught the attention of corporations and you know, last Saturday there was an interesting Zoom call where over a hundred uh, business people got together and were like, "Okay, we didn't realize how bad Georgia was going to be. We can't let this happen in other states." And that's a that's a that's a sea change that I think is really important for the U.S.
0: That is, yeah, that is actually a really good point. I mean, I, I think that the well, this this sudden moment we're having where Republicans are positioning themselves against corporations since the first time in living memory, I think is mm-hmm. yeah, it can be attributed entirely to. Well, to the broader theme of, of threats to democracy whether in the form of voter suppression laws or um, you know elected representatives voting against certifying the results of the election leading to the big lie and a you know an attempt to violently take over the capital which I suppose is bad for business if you like democracy
1: well right actually it's not they don't think of it as a partisan issue they think of it as a democratic issue and also our democracy issue and the other thing is they are looking at their demographics. Their demographics are moving from the boomers to the millennials. Thank you, and uh, they're like, "Well, our vote, our consumers want this. We, we have to pay attention to what our the millennials want." And this is, uh, you know, democracy is important to them. Democracy is important to us. Let's do it. What can we do?
0: Yeah, I suppose that's yeah, that's that's true. I guess um, I guess having having your company be completely against democracy is probably probably not a um... Not a great platform for which to advertise <laughs> um i would i would imagine it's been right.
1: happening in the past i mean but i really think it's a it's the great demographic shift that we're seeing in the united states and um the millennials are becoming the uh, voter block to support and this is great for the united states it's, it's what i have hope gives me hope actually
0: yeah i, I guess um yeah, I, I don't remember the youth turnout statistics for the twenty twenty elections specifically, but I mean, the, isn't the millennial generation just physically the largest? Not physically, but like in yes, terms. Yes, it of, is.
1: Yep. Yes. The numbers are great. I mean, we are like if you look at the numbers of um, voters and uh, around across the world, our numbers really grew in in that um, between eighteen and thirty five mm. um, in twenty twenty, and you know that that happened in the United States as well. So it's. Definitely the, the boomer generation voting block is diminishing. The millennial uh, uh, voting block is growing. And that is just all good for democracy.
0: Fantastic. I'll have to start working on my okay boomer memes. Um,
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, so in any case, in terms of uh, some of the threats that that democracy is facing in the United States, uh, why don't we get into a little bit more what, uh, what sort of reforms the Democrats are actually proposing to to uh, stand up to some of these efforts, so I, I guess the the most um, uh, the proposal that people are most aware of is HR one or S one or for the People Act. Um, can you just discuss a little bit, as you know, from your position as somebody who who's you know intimately involved with voter protection issues? Can you discuss a little bit um, what is HR one and and um, how it aims to solve um, some of the problems that I've complained about a whole bunch?
1: Absolutely. So HR 1 is the House version of the bill, the For the People Act, um, uh, which was introduced in 2018 and has just been reintroduced in, 20, in, the, um, in this year with almost exactly the same language. It passed the House and now it's in the Senate as S1. So um, it covers voting rights, election security, campaign finance reform, ethics. Um, it even supports DC statehood. It talks about gerrymandering. Oh, oh yeah. You it mentions statehood. Um, yeah, it okay. talks about, it has a section in there about DC statehood, talks about gerrymandering, and then it also addresses FEC's work, which is also under campaign finance reform. So okay. that's it, it, you know just a really high level view of what it does.
0: Interesting. Okay. So I did not really, I thought I was going to have to circle back and say, sadly, these laws will not include a solution to the Senate problem that I mentioned in the earlier episode, but wow. Okay. I guess for the people is bringing it in. Um, so great news there yeah Um, i mean it supports
1: dc becoming a state so basically it affirms that congress can vote on it and it also interestingly um you know i'm sure you've heard about this it it says okay here's where dc is where all everybody lives the federal district will still be um the area around the capitol the white house the national mall etc
0: yeah so that that is i was going to say yeah for 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 people for people listening who are interested in how this would work um (sighs) I I think basically all the DC statehood proposals are basically to just like re almost like redraw a, a, the district as being like just around a couple of buildings. Um, yeah, nobody actually It's basically lives, federal which, the federal area. Yeah, literally. yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Um, this
1: doesn't. This does not admit DC as a state. That's HR fifty one, but it does ah, okay. support it. So that's the that's important to to you know differentiate.
0: They made it HR fifty one.
1: HR fifty one is a, is admitting
0: as a yeah exactly yeah. A little bit. yeah little little um yeah numbers
1: game of, or yeah is, you
0: know. I was going to say it seems too obvious to call it an Easter egg but yeah <laughs> exactly exactly uh, <laughs> um, okay so so you mentioned FEC changes in the context of of campaign finance does that include like disclosure for super PAC donations or anything along those lines
1: oh absolutely so F- the FEC. The major thing it does with FEC, the FEC, is it basically it reduces the number of commissioners from six to five. But mm-hmm. then, when we're talking about all the campaign finance reform, that's really interesting. You know, it basically um, imposes stricter limitations on foreign lobbying. Uh, super PACs have to disclose their donors. It restructures um, uh, other aspects of the FEC. It, the other thing that I really like about it, it supports overturning Citizens United, mm-hmm. which is, you know, is um, the Supreme Court in Citizens United held that. Uh, limits on ind- independent political expenditures by corp- corporations, unions, et cetera, were unconstitutional. And so the sky's the limit uh, under Citizens United, and that is really not good for democracy.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, the bill won't be able to overturn Citizens United fully because yep. Supreme Court, until well, <laughs> un- unless and exactly. until we're able to change the, uh, the makeup of the Supreme Court or pass a constitutional amendment, which is even less likely. Um, but it's, it's good to know that at least there will be some, declu- uh, some disclosure things mentioned in there and those changes to the FEC, the which for my listeners, by the way, is the Federal Election Commission, I believe exactly. is the, the acronym. Yep. Yeah, I, was, mm-hmm. I can never remember what the actual acronym is, but this is the, the body that regulates certain things to do with, with elections and campaign finance. Um, in terms of gerrymandering, what steps does the bill take to, to make sure that districts are drawn in a way that's actually fair rather than just in order to benefit whichever party happens to temporarily control the legislature?
1: Well, I mean, it specifically prohibits partisan gerrymandering. And then uh, it says independent commissions need to come in and draw up the congressional district lines. So that's, that's really good. And then it has like a whole, like a, a priority list of um, uh, how gerry- how the district lines are drawn. And I think that's, uh, it's interesting, you know, that they are really making it a lot more, you know, scientific, You're starting with population and going down and it's not supposed, uh, the lines cannot be drawn to um uh, support or uh, restrict uh, minorities from in uh, you know basically say that one group can has a, has more power than another. So, so I, I really d- admire that quite a lot.
0: Okay so d- does it actively am, am I understanding you correctly that it does in fact actively take the power to redraw districts out of the hands of legislatures and put it into independent commissions?
1: Yep, absolutely that's fantastic. It does. So,
0: so it's not a scenario where it just like calls upon state legislatures to do the right thing. And then we would in theory require that we have an actual department of justice that, that cares about these things to enforce the law in the future. It is supplanting the legislatures.
1: Yes. It basically creates a commission that, mission, that okay. it, uh, has every commission would have to have 15 members on it. Like there's five Democrats, five Republicans, five independents, and they would be uh, separately creating these proposals. Okay. Um, That's sort they, of like
0: what we've seen in Michigan uh, starting in 2019, I believe we passed, no no, 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 In the 2018 election in Michigan, we passed a referendum that caused that to be put in place. Yeah. I think California has had a similar, well, I think they use an algorithm or something. I, I, they have some sort of nonpartisan redistricting in California, but, well, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it's really the five part criteria It's like population equality. Uh, it must comply with the voting rights act. Then, you know, and then compliance with additional racial requirements. Um, So like, for example, you you can't go in there uh, and dilute a minority's influence like we just talked about earlier. So it's, it's really very interesting, I think.
0: Hey folks, before the episode continues, I just want to take a second to ask you if you haven't already, please go ahead, hit that subscribe button. Then after you do that, hit the little button next to it with the three dots or whatever it is on your preferred platform, hit share, and spam that link out to everybody you can think of. That way you don't miss an episode and it really does help get the show off the ground, which I appreciate very much. All right, back to it. Okay. Um, in terms of voter suppression, I what is okay. what do we have there?
1: <laughs> well, there's a lot, uh, which is wonderful. Um, so the first thing it does is, I mean, I think this is fantastic, is same-day re- voter registration for all federal uh-huh. elections. Uh, another thing that I really love is it makes election day an, a federal holiday.
0: Oh, excellent, yeah.
1: Yep. Really important. Um, And also, people it it requires states. Many states already have this, but it requires states, all states, to hold early voting for at least two weeks. So you know, we saw in twenty twenty how important early voting is. And I mean, I would, I love that it would make this a federal law.
0: Yeah. Um, Just as an as an an anti line provision, at the very least.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing is a lot of this is like what's in in uh, good voting states, and it just makes it federal. Okay. So, for example, um, it, it requires states to offer online voter registration. That seems really, since, you know, everyone thinks, oh, of course that's normal, but actually only 39 states plus D.C. has that, so it makes it uh, across the board. I think it's really another very important thing to include.
0: Is, um, is, is it an affirmative voting registration thing? I know Hillary had proposed to support her 2016 platform that there be like I think affirmative voting registration when people turn 18, is it is it like that or is oh, it-
1: Well, that's the other interesting thing. Okay, you know, uh, it let's 16 and 17 year olds to pre-register to
0: vote. Okay.
1: So, um, and it, there is an automatic registration. Um, I'm not sure of the details of how that works, but it's basically, uh, if you go, uh, if you're in public colleges and if you go to the DMV that, and get your driver's license, then you're automatically uh, registered to vote.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so bottom line, there's, uh, there's basically a streamlining of the registration process and a facilitation of actual access to the ballot in terms of early voting and making it a federal holiday and stuff like this. Does it does HR one in any way touch on voter ID laws that have been passed in a number of states or has it left that to the states.
1: Well, it also talks, you know, it's that's an interesting question It does do a lot, you know, we have a huge problem with voter purges, right. And so then there's this practice called voter caging, which is a um, kind of the pre purge practice where you can, states can challenge voters registration. Um, They, for example, they'll send mail to people's houses hoping to get uh, a um, person not found um, back because then they can automatically take them off the roll um they will they will pepper addresses that they have to try to, to get that to happen so oh. this is it's, and that's it's just heinous and so that's so basically big- they've,
0: they've, they've mixed in mailers of all the spam that people get yes. mail and then throw out and if someone yes. doesn't actually go through all of the the pamphlets from used car card dealerships and and whatever else and find this little envelope from the state then then they can of yep. just that should take away this person's voting registration. That's
1: right. And so, I mean, one thing I'd love uh, it also does is it like basically a voter purge cannot happen um, uh, six months before the an election. It you know, so that means people are registered, they don't have to worry. I know this is crazy, so they don't have to worry that they registered um and will be thrown out if as long as they register within six months of an, wow. of an election. Well, yep.
0: previous listeners to this podcast will know that that the current governor of Georgia was previously in charge of that and and um, engaged in some particularly heinous voter purges in the lead up to his election. So I guess, um, uh, yeah, well, we're, were for the people to pass, it would be bad news for future state secretaries of state running for governor, hoping to, you know, stack the election in their favor by axing a whole bunch of voters they assume will vote against them.
1: Absolutely. It also, interesting I, um, addition, it restores voting rights for any uh, felon who's completed their prison term.
0: Okay. So, yeah. so it's like the Florida Amendment nationally. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly.
1: Um, it also, uh, you know, if you're removed from the rolls, the voter ro- rolls, you're supposed to be timely notified actually by your election official Okay. Um, so that you can contest it or um, reinstate your registration. That's okay. very, very important for um, our voters, um, you know, because when people are moving around a lot, uh, they might, you know, we are, we're often caught, caught up in some of these purges, especially if people have not uh, sent in their FPCA forms, they've just registered as a state uh, absentee voter.
0: Right, that makes sense. So in, in terms of ID specifically, though, is there any provision in in, in the For the People Act that, that actually addresses um, questions of, of whether or not these voter ID laws are are fair or, or whether they will, will continue to be a thing, or or does the federal government actually, I'm not sure if under the 10th Amendment the government has the ability to- I
1: know, it. that's it's a really good question. I, you know, that's something that I have not dug into as um, for overseas voters, we don't have to have a picture ID. So um, so it's not something that I, I normally pay attention to, but that's some, we should look into that.
0: Okay, interesting. Um, See, so yeah, I'd, I'd be curious, I mean, like given, Given the way voter ID laws have been to have been designed to to target Democratic voters, I mean, my my favorite example is the the Texas one where you can use a concealed carry permit yes. um, to vote, but you can't use a student ID. Uh, I know, I know. I was going to say, I don't know, maybe maybe Texas's concealed must. carry permit has a photo on it because I mean, concealed carry permits that I've seen do not have a picture on them. So yeah, uh,
1: that's yeah. But that's student IDs right.
0: do. So I mean, I guess in in Texas, as long as you can prove that you have a handgun, doesn't matter if you could actually prove that it's you.
1: Exactly, Um, oh, that's so scary. And you know, one thing that's interesting, it does have a whole subsection J on, uh, for overseas voters, um, which I love of course, anything to do with overseas, that's our eyes go straight to that section.
0: I would imagine, yes.
1: And you know, so uh, it really gives a lot more teeth to both attorney generals and individuals who want to sue if a state uh, violates EOCAVA rules, um, which is fantastic. It's going to be really useful for our own voter protection efforts. But it also uh, it basically reminds um, states all along the way that they what they have to do. So already states are required to send out ballots 45 days um, before an election, a general election. But it requires them to report ahead of time that they're ready to do that, and then report afterwards that they've done so. So okay. this is really good. It also one thing I also very much appreciate is that it says, "Hey, you missed your deadline. Well, you're going to have to go ahead and express deliver that." Ballot and pay for your voter to send it back, um, oh, which is excellent. amazing. It also expands um, uh, the definition of military voters to include military family members as well.
0: They so weren't that, already.
1: I know you know they they were already included by states, but it just it, it codifies it. it right.
0: That. Okay. Just and we in are case, working in case some state decides that's no longer in their advantage. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we
1: are actually working on an amendment uh, to um, expand that definition as well. Because right now, 35 states and D.C. allow the definition of overseas voters to include people who've never resided in in the United States but are U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. and they get to vote based on where their parents um, last resided. Mm. 15 states don't uh, allow that because it's not in uh, Iwakaba. So um, we are working on an amendment with several senators um, that would uh, just write it into the law that um, never resided are also included under the overseas voters definition
0: interesting so what this does this do anything also to to ease voter registration for americans abroad i remember working in um, in the DA primary where I was registering voters, a couple of states in particular, well, New York was the really bad one in terms of how we registered people to vote. Is, is there anything that's, because I know there, there are a number of states that allow you to like register or request your ballot and then send it in entirely digitally. But then there are some that require, like, you know, where New I York. voted in Michigan, I had to physically send it in. Is there anything that will sort of standardize that process or no? So
1: far, no. Okay. Um, And that is something that we're always working on and pushing for and we encourage anyone listening to this, who uh, is a voter abroad, get in touch with your Senator and say, look, make this process easier. This is ridiculous. But um, we are working on that at the state level. In New York, there is a bill and committee that would ask, uh, that would require New York to allow ballots to be electronically submitted or, you know, submitted online.
0: Okay, interesting. So then, so bottom line, this uh, this bill contains a whole lot of good stuff. It does, uh, very in- big. Including, um, including some sort of affirmations for, for statehood for Washington and, and I guess not Puerto Rico and, and I guess both of those would still be separate but the fact that there is a, a, a part in there that would in some way facilitate that process is music to my ears as someone who believes strongly in statehood for those things and spent a bunch of time in the last episode complaining about the Senate being super unfair, which it is. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, so uh, the bill contains a whole lot, a whole lot of good stuff um, I guess the, the big question is um, how likely it is to actually become law. So in that context, um, this may be a silly question, but uh, I know you've been talking to to some Democratic senators offices from your position as head of DA about this. Do you, do you get the sense that this is is being is, is being prioritized, that this is being taken? I mean, I know Schumer has come out and said failure is not an option, but I mean like, you know, we said that about a lot of stuff. is, is, is this, How high a priority do you sense that this is
1: i think it's a high priority it's just a question of whether or not uh you know they want to make sure that if it's voted on it will pass and so what i think what i have a feeling a lot of that is happening on on the hill is that um senators are putting together very good bills and making sure their constituents understand what's in those bills so that they understand what's at stake this is really important as part of the pressure to remove the filibuster because Uh, we can talk about removing the filibuster, but we need to know why we need to do that. And constituents need to understand that. And I think that's why they're building these beautiful, like the infrastructure bill and HR one, it's really designed to show what is at stake in, in a really concrete and, um, you know, illustrative form. So that's, you know, I, I, when I'm talking to Senate staff, they're like, well, um, we think it's going to go to markup this, this month or, you know, we we're hoping to, it will be coming out of committee. We don't know when the vote's going to be. And they all, we all hear the hesitancy about, you know, what's going to happen next with it. But we also know, like, as we're working on this amendment, how important it is, the time is ne- now for us to get that language in the, in the bill.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so then, yeah, I, I will probably, for, for my listeners who don't know what the filibuster is or unfamiliar with like how it works exactly. exactly, I will probably discuss that a little bit. Uh, more later, so that you and I don't have to spend 20 minutes going back and forth as to whether Senator Joe Manchin will decide <laughs> to do the right thing or not. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll rant about that myself a little later and not uh, not take any of your time on that. But like, since okay, so this is bottom line. This is a fairly high priority for most people in the Democratic Party. Um, yes, I guess because by-
1: the- what's happening in the states? We you know these state legislators are just bringing in awful bills one after another, and HR one would would knock them down like a bowling ball.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard many times this being referred to as the single largest attempt to roll back voting rights since the Jim Crow era. Yes. Um, I think there's there's some debate over whether it's appropriate to make an active Jim Crow comparison, but saying that it's the largest rollback in voting rights in half a century is in that context, I think is, I mean, just numerically it's accurate.
1: <laughs> I think for um, the Georgia bill, it's certainly true. I think it's very yeah. much the case.
0: Yeah. So uh, along those depressing lines, let's um, as as we wrap up, I'm I'm going to ask you to uh, let your imagination run wild and speculate for a minute what what might what would happen in your mind if HR one isn't actually enacted.
1: Okay. So what we would need to do is we would have to go full throttle on um, attacking each of these state bills one at a time. Now the I always think when there's good things and bad things about the, the fact that most states have very short legislative sessions. Um, the good thing is, uh, you know, it's a lot of their work's going to be done by June, so we will be able to assess the damage. And and you know, we're already bringing uh, there are a lot of court cases coming up against the Georgia bill. We are actually a Democrats abroad is participating in the amicus curiae brief. Uh, Along with some legislation, I mean, some uh, litigation uh, against that bill. So there's going to be a lot of court cases that are going to be thrown at all these awful bills, and and um, because the legislative sessions end in June, we have time to do that before um, next year. So that's what I see is happening. Um, There's never only one solution. So there's there's always the legal solutions. We use those very effectively in 2020 and early 2021. And I think that's what we would do next.
0: Okay, well, that is a that is a very. I was going to say how how positive and productive you immediately went to alternative solutions. <laughs> um, well, that's
1: my job. I always think. Yes. What? Here are the challenges. What can we do about them?
0: Yes. Well, that's um. Well, I I hope that the rest of the party thinks that way, and that um. Well, uh, in my better moods, that I'm able to as well. <laughs> um, I, I was um. I was imagining a well. I guess I, I will speculate as to, uh, you know, the sort of, the sort of doom that will occur if huge numbers of states further restrict their voting rights. Um, and I guess, ask listeners to think in general about what what usually happens to countries when majorities of that country's voters are not actually represented in the government. Uh, I mean, uh, I think, um, We've had two presidential elections in the last 20 years in which the person who won the majority of votes did not become president. And I think the increasing frustration that we see with the political system can probably be somewhat tied to the fact that voters are not, with the gerrymander and the imbalance of the Senate, majorities continually vote for the party that then does not end up controlling Congress, which I think fuels the idea that government can't get anything done, which you know is not usually a good thing for a population to think. Um, so I guess we have to hope that this passes and if it doesn't that um, that uh, Julia as you suggest that we're able to to roll back some of these laws at the state level
1: mm-hmm. and we, we will you know we'll be fighting them uh, with legal measures we'll fight them you know there's there's one thing that I think is really interesting is when people see uh, roadblocks to democracy thrown up they respond that's what happened in 2020 it's amazing you know, how people came out of the woodwork to vote. And I think that would happen in 2022 as well. The Senate is really up for grabs. There's seven uh, swingy, swingy states that are, um, you know, where we can really make some good inroads into the Senate. And I, I think that um, if the Republicans should be watching their back, if they, if they are really gonna be pushing these, these awful laws, people are not gonna sit down for that.
0: Well, yeah, that, that's true. I really hope you're right. Or to, to, to jump on to the thing you said before. Um, we will fight in the courthouses. We will fight in the legislatures. We yeah. will fight in the ballot boxes. We will fight in the hills. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. It's that's, so
1: true. Uh, I feel the same way.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt that. I felt that Churchill reference coming on. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I guess um, I guess as as a, by way of wrapping up, I should just ask: is there is there any other question you think that I should be asking about this that um, that we should touch on, or or have we covered? Um...
1: Well, the, I think the one thing for any overseas voter listening to this podcast right now: think about how your vote's protected by by being a UOCAVA voter, by being an overseas voter who sent in your federal postcard application. You have really protected your vote. I've been uh, reading all of the state legislation that comes out, and it's really terrible of what it does to absentee voters and how it restricts your rights. But there's almost always a little line that says, this terrible law law applies except for for overseas voters. Mm. And that is because of federal law. And um, so please remember, always get your, uh, send in your ballot application as an uh, overseas voter, not as a state level voter.
0: Mm. Oh, that's an interesting side point. Um, Well, I hope that uh, any Americans living outside the country who are listening to this will remember that in the next election cycle. Vote from um, abroad.org. Yeah. Oh, yes. Vote <laughs> from abroad.org. Uh, and that anybody who is, um, you know, an American who's not abroad or, uh, well, anyone who's interested in American politics in general, uh, here's the other point that Julia just made there, which is the importance of having a law at the federal level. Yes. Um, rather than having to fight at, well, <laughs> fight in the legislatures and in the Hill and on the beaches exactly. in every single individual state. Um, well, in any case, um, yeah, I guess the bottom line is we need to get this goddamn thing passed. We do. <laughs> um, so, we need to well, get
1: the filibuster reform, but you're going to talk about that later.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you. Uh, again, the please, please, Joe Manchin, do the right thing uh, part of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, well, um, Julia, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. And um, uh, I hope uh, I hope my listeners enjoyed our conversation and um, I look forward to talking to you about other stuff in the future. Well, likewise. Thanks so much, Oliver. You have a great rest of your day. Ciao. Right. Thank you, Julia. See so, ya. Yeah, bye. So there you have it. HR 1, S 1, the For the People Act, whatever we choose to call it, would make it harder for corporations to sneakily influence American politics, harder for partisan politicians to choose their own voters through the comically unfair current process of drawing congressional districts, easier for Americans to vote safely. Seems like a no brainer, right? Well, yes, unfortunately, there are a number of people who don't think so, or who at least understand that their own interests run counter to this bill being passed into law, despite its obvious virtues. People who feel that way represent one major obstacle to this bill becoming law, to these critical reforms to protect our democracy from being carried out. Uh, But another probably equally serious threat to the passage of this law comes from a block of folks who largely support what the law does, but aren't willing to do what it takes to make it actually become a law, which would almost certainly require modifying or skirting in some way yet another comically undemocratic institution in American politics. I will plan to discuss all that in more detail in the next installment. Until then, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Julia as much as I did, and I want to thank you for giving me this platform to talk about these issues and to dig into them with interesting people like Julia. I really do appreciate it. Related, if you haven't already, please take a second to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and share it on social media or a printout that you staple to a local telephone pole, however you get the word out. It really does help. As always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork. Until the next episode, thanks again for listening.